Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. Once again, we're recording at various locations around the metropolitan New York City area. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, Editor of PW Comics World, and Editor of The Fanatic, uh, PW's twice-a-month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I am the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. And you can find us on Twitter at at PWComicsWorld. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. And you can find us online on Tumblr at PWComicsWorld.tumblr.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to More to Come on the Apple Podcast app, on Google Podcasts, and on Stitcher. And on social media, we at Facebook.com slash PWComicsWorld. And don't forget, you could also leave us a message or give us a rating, give us a thumbs up, um, uh, positive reviews or negative reviews if you must. But yes, we love to hear from our listeners. Say something to us. Give us a peace sign. Anything will do. All right. This week on More to Come, um, what's going on at Tapas Media and all things San Diego Comic-Con. All right. Heidi. Uh, yeah, well, you know, the news never sleeps. And just this Boy. afternoon, so, uh, word broke, uh, that Tapas Media, which we've talked about extensively on this podcast, was having some layoffs. Wow. And it sounds like it's kind of some consolidation going on. Uh, you know, we have talked about the story of how they were, you know, they've been a webcomics portal. It's been around for, you know, 10 years, more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. However, la- last year they were acquired by Kakao, which is a co- giant Korean company for a reported $510 million. Kakao mm-hmm. uh, went on a spending spree and also bought Radish, which was a kind of online storytelling portal yes. for about $400 million. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, arch rival Webtoon had also bought Wattpad for, I don't have the number, but it was probably umpty umpty million dollars. Yes. Uh, so it kind of seemed to be an arms race at that point. And then towards and, the end. Meanwhile, they bought Wuxia World. Well, which, which I was just about to say that towards the end of the year, they bought Wuxia World, which is kind of a fantasy portal for a mere $39 million. So as you can see, you know, prices were declining <laughs> as we went <laughs> With around. Each so, well, I, I don't think it's so much that prices were declining as, have you, have you seen Wuja World? No. Um, it's, uh, it's decidedly a lower rent property. It has a lot of potential, but it's, I'm sorry, in my professional opinion, it's not there yet. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So it doesn't surprise me. It just surpri- surprises me that it was worth $3.7 million yes. at uh, no, all. Not, Thir- not 3.7, no, not, yeah. $39.7 yes. yeah. million. Dollars. Okay, well then, uh, the Comics Beat has the price wrong. Oh, really? Okay. Comics Beat says it's $37.5 million. Yeah. You said 39 well, I'm I'm there in the go. same magnitude, not 3.7 million. <laughs> we're all, we're off by tens of millions. They're, they're of in the we're we're in the ballpark. Um, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Let's, well, all of this is quibble. content aggregation in one form or another. Yeah. Um, I mean, Wuja World is a kind of a fan fiction site. Uh, China, no, no, no. What it or, is is it's a translation site for Chinese web novels, uh-huh. and then along the way, it also picked up. Um, some American web novels in the style of Chinese web novels, but Chinese web novels are well, they're they're just ebooks. Only they're written in installments, and frequently they're written by first-time authors who 
maybe can't get a publishing company to take a chance on them. So um, it's like it's kind of like a Kindle book, only it's written in very small installments, much in the way of like Dickens. It sounds like Wattpad. Yeah, kind of. But well, it sounds like a focused Wattpad. Like yeah. the, the the subject matter is more focused. Yeah, because yeah, Wattpad, yeah, it's, it's, all it's, kinds of genres on Wattpad. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Wattpad has anything and everything, and a lot of it's not paid. Mm-hmm. Wuja World is primarily uh, Chinese fantasy and martial arts works translated into English. So they are translating this grassroots, um, small published stuff into English to find a new market. Um, and, and, you know, it definitely has its fan base, but... When I last checked their website before they were acquired, well, there's a reason I didn't go back to their website because it was not there yet. So well, I can see why it would become the subject of some consolidation. What my understanding is, is that as you do when you acquire a whole bunch of companies, there is a lot of redundancy. And, you know, every company has its own CFO and its own COO and its own CCO and its own C-suite. So, so it sounds like some of this is consolidation in that way where it's all going to be running under the CEO who was previously at Tapas. Um, however, I do understand like a lot of people at Radish were laid off. And, um, so, I mean, some people are saying 30% of the staff overall was laid off. So it's quite a few people. And there were reports. I don't know who was laid off in, um, editorial there. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've certainly reported that, you know, they went on a hiring spree as well. They hired Michelle Wells and Alex Carr from DC yes. and Damian Rich from DC and, um, Chris Robinson and uh, mm-hmm. Jamie Scarford <clears throat> a little while ago. So maybe he saw the handwriting on the wall. He went to IDW. Uh, so I don't know who's left, but I, except for one person, I can confirm that Michael's son, who is kind of the chief content officer, is still there. Yeah. Yeah. But um but yeah, Kate, as you were saying, uh you could see why, you know, given all that, why there would be some consolidation. Right. But what's con- more concerning to me are cuts from the Tapas staff, uh which appears to have uh lost some editorial staff. Um Tapas was a pretty has a has a pretty strong brand and has a very strong lineup of content. And is overall very well run, um, which is why it's been, you know, rocketing into our consciousness as comics people. Uh, and so I really hope that nothing hurts Tapas's ascent because they've got some really great books. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm a little surprised that um what we're seeing so far i mean this news broke this afternoon and unlike some other times that we've i mean certainly you know when oni when all the oni news broke um you know there was just an outpouring of of uh you know outrage from creators and confusion from creators so i haven't seen that so it sounds like uh tapas and and you know cacao is handling this a little bit better than oni did and at least they waited until a few days after san diego comic-con mm-hmm. Uh, which makes an awful lot of sense. So, 
you know, I have to say, this just seems to me to be something. Now, I've heard that they're going to be pulling back at originals, but then I've also heard that they're continuing with everything they were doing. So this is very, very early. This literally yeah. just happened today. Yeah. Uh, this is literally breaking news. So we certainly have more on it. But um, it does seem to me, generally speaking, that it's kind of like what happened with Webtoon. Because when Webtoon started, it had an, a United States staff. You know, it was run by... An American, Tom mm. Akel, right. and produced a lot of work that, you know, and paid for it, hired people to make comics who were mm-hmm. Occidental, as we put it. And, um, you know, and then one day they stopped doing that and uh, mostly have concentrated on Korean content and, and what, what Kate was talking about before, you know, the much, desired UGC, user-generated mm-hmm. content, which everybody loves nowadays. So mm-hmm. well, it sounds it's like Tapas might have done the same, well, same I, thing. I will say, in defense of Tapas, as opposed to some other UGC models, um, this is more along the lines of what I was talking about happening um, with the Chinese web novels, in that these are paid. This is not like user-generated content like Facebook where you are the content cow and you don't get paid. People who create the user-generated content are like anyone who creates a Kindle ebook or whatever. The mm. authors, there's mm-hmm. a payment model and the authors get paid. But the authors get paid when the story gets read. Because um, if you've read Tapas, if you've been on Tapas, if you've been on Webtoon, um, they definitely have a model where you get some installments for free and some mm-hmm. installments you pay for. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, well, it um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they went to an agent and hired uh, a pre-existing writer for a lot of this stuff. It's it's not exactly like um, like Wattpad, where a lot of the stuff that really makes the money for the company, the writer never gets paid. Mm-hmm. Well, Wattpad's model was, you know, not to sell anything, but that's changed over time, if I'm not mistaken. Now they have a variety of deals that creators can buy into to get. If, if you're of a certain stature and, they, and you get the traffic, that you right. can make money but, on it now. But they don't, they don't have that barrier mm-hmm. on Webtoon or Tapas or similar models like that. It's it yeah. is in that way like a Kindle ebook. Yeah. If someone reads your story, you get paid. If more people get read your story, you get paid more. It's not like Wattpad or some similar, in my opinion, rather exploitative platforms where you're basically auditioning to be worthy to be paid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so it it's a very different model. Uh and frankly I think a fairer one mm-hmm. than a lot of other UGC type models. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, wasn't the the issue kind of around? I mean, in in the last few months, some discussion of upgrading the terms in some of these uh, well, platforms. Seen, Not well, that they weren't getting paid, but that maybe it was time for for, uh, for some of the deals to get a little better. Now, all both of these platforms, Tapas and Webtoons, if I'm not mistaken, they had a way for you to escalate into a higher level of earnings based as just as Kate was saying, based on whether you were really attracting, right. uh, you know, a big right. audience. But, you, but even if you get a small audience, you yes, you're still going to get paid. Yes. Yeah. Well, it certainly sounds, uh, you, you know, that. All of these are are still very much in play because let me tell you, 
Another player, now this was a story that, uh, press release that arrived in my email box, I believe just Wednesday of Comic-Con, so certainly the, the timing, uh, was there, was, uh, did you see the story about how, uh, Tumix Webtoons was acquired by Terrapin Studios, which is, um, a subsidiary of NPX Capital, uh, <laughs> was acquired by them for $160 million. So, uh, and you know, the PR is full of how it's one of the fastest rising and they've been around for, you know, XX and they have a show that's a development at Netflix and blah, blah, blah. They have 22 million active, million active, monthly active users, 60 million subscribers. But, uh, you know, $160 million is certainly still an eyebrow raising amount. So, you know, it just seems to me that, that whatever's going on within the Korean IP world, webtoons, which is the generic name for them, um, mm-hmm. but you know, web comics, scrolling web comics, are very much in play, and very much, um, you know, I, I think uh, that the the arms race, as I call it, between Tapas and webtoon is still on. Between Cacao and Naver is still on. It just, it just sounds. I do think this is a lot of consolidation, and you know, we'll have to see how it rolls out over the next few days. Whether all the people, you know, Michelle Wells or, you know, what happened to Michelle and, and all the other yeah. editorial folks who were hired there. Um, but I, I, I was going to say also, I think there's been a little bit of grousing on Twitter among creators kind of talking about, mm-hmm. you know, practices at, at Tapas and Webtoon that aren't as favorable to creators and, um, you right. know, it's, it's better than Wattpad or Facebook. But it's not the same as being published by a publisher. It's not. You're basically quasi self-published. Right. Right. Uh, well, and you, you know, Tapas had a lot of uh, print deals. They just did a mm-hmm. deal with Yen Press, and they had done a yeah. deal with uh, Andrews McMeal. So they certainly are moving into publishing at this point. So, yeah. you know, I think what we're going to see is they're just going to consolidate and kind of retune with a little bit more – uh, Korean leadership is my guess. Um, mm. but, uh, but we'll see. That's just a guess. This literally happened a couple hours well, ago. It, it makes sense timeline wise because while they've been pushing on the American market for a while, they really hit critical mass during the pandemic. I know yeah. that's when I became a major subscriber as opposed mm. to someone who like looked at the apps like twice. And I'm not alone in this. Like you, you can see the numbers skyrocketing in the United States of use <laughs> of these apps. Um, and so then after the boom of users came the boom of spending. And, you know, you can't sustain a boom of spending. At a certain point, you have to take a look at what spending actually worked out and what didn't. So we're right on time for some consolidation. Yeah, and, and acquisitions and mergers alike, they almost invariably are followed by layoffs. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it just took a little while, and mm-hmm. uh, here they come. Although I will say, what is a little bit odd about this is that they acquired Tapas, and then they hired all these people. Yeah, yeah. And uh sounds like some of them might not have, um, you know, survived this. So uh we shall see. More to come. Definitely more to come. All right. Well... Heidi, where have you been the last? Uh... Well, I was at the Comic Con. <laughs> yes, you were. Comic-Con. It wasn't the same without you and Jody. It was uh, very Calvary. odd to me yeah. not to be there, to say the least. Um, but I tried to do the best I could. So, uh, to... well, you were certainly not the only person who did not go, and 
because uh, the con, I think the major storyline is that, uh, you know, it coincided with a huge spike in COVID in Southern California. Mm. And there was a lot of fears that it would be a super spreader event. And I have seen a lot of people who have COVID, including one of the people I was rooming with. Has COVID. Excuse me. Somebody is making a noise. That's Not me. me. I'm sorry. I was yeah. moving my hip. I was adjusting my headphones. Oh, okay. So uh, quite a few people have come down with COVID, including mm-hmm. one of my roommates. I continue to test negative, uh, including, you know, the PCR test, which is really the only test that I trust. Um, so we'll see. You know, I mean, I continue to test. I'm, I'm sort of quarantining for a while until I feel, I mean, I, I feel like I should just quarantine in general until this spike is over, but you know, that's not <laughs> quite practical. Um, I will say that unlike Anime Expo, the compliance on the show floor was very high of masking. Um, everybody was wearing a mask or, you know, I'd say 90% of people were wearing mm. a mask 90% of the time. And it was very high. It was, it does sound like it was outside at the, at the gatherings where, uh, this transmission occurred, which we, we all knew would happen. And I don't think, I don't, I haven't seen anyone, uh, regretting going though. I will say, you know, Milton Greep, I, I was coming mm-hmm. out of the, the convention center and I ran into Milton Greep and Bridget Alverson and, you know, Milton who runs the ICV2 site, uh, Milton is a, I would say he's a rather august presence. Would you say that's? He's a towering presence. Towering and august presence. <laughs> and literally. He was, yes, very tall, tall man. And he was just smiling. He was just smiling well, happily. If, if I may say so, and I just want to redirect people very quickly to your story at publishersweekly.com slash comics. San Diego Comic Con returns with smaller crowds maybe, but a lot of big smiles. Yeah, and that was just it. You know, we all felt it at New York Comic Con last fall, which was really the first time that the tribe had gathered. There was just so much joy, and there was just so much joy at this show of people reuniting, colleagues reuniting, of being able to do the things that we love doing and going to the places we love. And, um, you know, with some... Uh, with caution, you know, sure. it wasn't, I mean, certainly I wasn't all out, you know, I was very cautious. If I, I felt like I was in a place that was poorly ventilated, I did not stay in that place or, or I tried to mitigate it as much as I could. Mm-hmm. I think by Saturday night, see, by Saturday night, I was like, look, as long as I get on my plane and get home, I'm okay, you know. <laughs> so, so I probably dropped my guard more Saturday and Sunday than I had the whole show and, um, I saw a couple of other people were sort of just, you know, exhausted mm. by then too. But um, yeah, there was definitely fewer people there as well. Def- definitely saw a smaller show floor, and everybody said, "Oh, if only it was like this every year." But I, I <laughs> doubt, I doubt it will be. So um, yeah, so, and, you know, so, speaking of webtoon, I mean, there was a big win for Laura Olympus. Uh, absolutely, yeah. uh, um, best web comic, uh, the Eisner Award, Rachel Smythe. Uh, who we also happen to get uh, our, our podcast interview with. So <clears throat> I, I was not on the ground in San Diego, uh, which was a disorienting uh, feeling, but had to be done. Uh, yet um, I, in some ways I was doing the same things that I usually do at San Diego, and that was chasing people to interview for the podcast. So, yes, I, I was lucky enough to actually be able to talk with Rachel Smythe the, the, the morning or really the, the, the day after. Uh, oh, wonderful. She won the prize, and she was an absolute delight to talk to. 
So I can talk more about that when we come around. Well, you can talk about it now. <laughs> well, okay. Well, one I of the podcasts. You can listen to the podcast. Yes, that's true. But let's just say, uh, she was an absolute delight to talk to. Uh, it was her dream to come to Comic Con and for her to come to Comic Con and to win an Eisner. You know, she was, you know, uh, beyond the moon. Um, uh, she talked about her background. Uh, she's from New Zealand. Um, uh, she talked about, uh, uh, she was, uh, about her love of, uh, mythology, uh, and how she translated this into, uh, this incredible kind of up to the minute dashing uh, version of Bullfinch's mythology with, um, the gods and goddesses, you know, riding around in fancy cars and shopping and, uh, and, and, uh, and her being able to add, uh, uh, both an inner life and a really, uh, clever and charming context. So she was, uh, really great fun to talk to. And she actually had some interesting things to say about how it was turned into a, a print, pr- uh, project. She, she wasn't able to remember the name, but she worked with a designer at Penguin Random House. Uh, I believe it was published by Del Rey. Um, who, she worked with him who really worked with focusing on, coming up with the individual syntax that would create the, the, this new book, which I, I think there's a whole range of things around Laura Olympus that are really fascinating. Um, and I reread it very quickly to interview her, and I was actually even more impressed with the book uh, after reading it a second time. Well, yeah, it was certainly a big win uh, for them. And, uh, you know, there were some big winners of the Eisners. Um, Calvin, I think you wrote a story about the Eisners. I did indeed. Um, let's see. I mean, uh, the winning book – I mean, I always – lead the story off with, you know, what book gets the uh, best new graphic album. And uh, this year it was Barry Windsor Smith's Monsters, uh, published by Fantagraphic. Uh, I think I called it an epic, beautifully illustrated work of horror and violence and social trauma. Um, uh, uh, um, he, he worked on this for years, if I'm not mistaken, yes? Yes, uh, he did, yeah. yeah. Um, and- in addition... Uh, I think we have to point out the latest, the newest really episode in the continuing, uh, graphic memoir about the, the life, uh, of John Lewis, the late John Lewis, uh, and the civil rights movement. I won best graphic novel. That's run book one. And, uh, the creative team of Andrew Iden, El Fury, and Nate Powell were back on stage again to, uh, to accept, uh, award for them and behalf of, uh, the great and much uh, uh, much mourned loss of John Lewis. And they did, you know, they did a little tribute to him. Like when uh, John Lewis was at Comic-Con, they would recreate his march. Uh, oh, yes. Pettis Bridge. What a great. Um, yes. And they did it again this time. And, uh, you know, Andrew Aiden, uh, the, co- the writer of the book, co-writer of the book, mentioned that, you know, he knew that John Lewis really loved going to comic books. And yes, he did. <laughs> it was really, really a nice moment to be able to recreate that with his son and, and the, you know, the team on run. So, um, yeah, it's like know, a children's you know, recreation of the, of his march yeah. across the Edmund Pettis Bridge. I mean, it, uh, to see the horde of, uh, when, it, and when it happened in 2016, to see this mass of people coming down the hallways of the San Diego Convention Center, it, it's really one of the most inspiring things you're ever going to see at a pop culture convention. It definitely is one of the top Comic-Con moments ever when yeah. that happened, for sure. Um, so uh, that was a good one. And let's see, what else? Um, you know, I was very much running around doing panels. I will say I wrote about this in my story. Uh, I didn't quite you do the the uh, 
log line that I heard, um, you know, I've also been podcasting. I'll just plug my other podcast, which is Four sure. Women in a Hotel Room, where we, we, we podcast live from the show every day. So, you, you know, if you want to recreate it and get some of our thoughts on the things happening, uh, I will plug that. But, um, you know, I moderated a panel, which is the first panel, to my knowledge, of the pandemic, where you had people in the same room. Uh, talking about kind of the future of comics and just, you know, what, uh, we did great during the, the, um, pandemic comics, you know, so our sales are up 60%. But, uh, what really everybody on the panel talked about, which had Philip Sablik, a publisher of Boom and Nachi Castro, publisher of IDW and Eric Reynolds, associate publisher of Fedographics and, um, Kevin Hamrick, who is a, a VP of marketing at Viz. And Jen Haynes, who is the president of Comics Pro and the owner of, well, uh, the Dragon and Guelph. Mm-hmm. So, you know, very, very, very smart knowledge. Great panel. People. Yeah. And, um, but they pointed out on the panel that, um, you know, comics are always like, oh, you know, the industry is dying. This is just a very common attitude for people <laughs> in the industry to have and for various reasons, which I, I think I'm, I must write an essay about. So I'll save the, the longer thoughts for that. But can uh, you, what can you give us a brief summary on well, why do, you think we always well, think but well, I comics think people always think the industry I do is think dying. it's because uh, they almost did die in the 50s. And if, uh, you know, because of Wortham and, uh, you know, the congressional hearings and the comics code that put, you know, half of the industry out of business and all, you know, so many publishers out of business. And, um, you know, if you do like the, the retro math, you know, where we are now, okay, 30 years ago is the rise of image comics, okay? Mm-hmm. And yep. 30 years ago, what happened 30 years ago was, uh, Frederick Wortham. So, you know, you could see just as we think about image now, uh, people then, you know, during the 70s and 80s and 90s thought about Wortham and all that. So, you know, they'd had this near-death experience that that lingered over the industry. So I think that's one of the reasons why. But so it's generational trauma. It is generational trauma, yes. And uh, But I do think that um, – uh, I, I do think that what we learned during the pandemic was that in these darkest times, um, even with the diamond shutdown, which has, you know, created its own generational trauma, it turned out that people need these stories. Yeah. People need these comics. People need these characters. And I, I think, I think the industry came out of it, you know, pretty peppy and pretty, yeah, I mean, we're facing horrible censorship issues right now that are, probably even worse than were them in a way because they're so organized and so widespread but i I don't hear people cowering in fear you know i hear people saying we're going to get we're going to fight this we're going to win and so i I think there's a newfound confidence in the industry that it will survive this this hellscape that we live in now and i think that i think the comics industry is we're, we're seeing a generation of people who are who are watching the comics industry uh, grow beyond the somewhat marginalized nature of the comics industry as it has been. And, you know, once again, I tend to attribute this to the impact of the book market and the book and the book format. Yes. Uh, and I, yeah. And I mean, you know, enough time has passed and more people are in the industry who don't, you know, who don't have this, this generational trauma and they come from outside uh, the comics industry and, you know, and they come from outside publishing. comics industry practices as well. Yes, yes. Yes. And it was interesting to go to the diamond breakfast or excuse me, the comics pro breakfast, which mm-hmm. is, you know, an annual tradition 
And um, here, the panel, which is the board of Comics Pro, just blithely talking about three having three distributors. Yeah. You know, and in the room was representatives of Diamond, PRH, and Lunar. And as I said, that was my real time machine moment. I, uh-huh. You know, I felt like I'd been you know, in one of those movies where you wake up and you're, you're, you know, three years of the future or in an alternate sure. timeline because, you know, we haven't been together in three years and now we are and there's three distributors and everybody's like, yeah, oh yeah, you know, okay. <laughs> you know, who has the best shipping? I, there was a, there, I'll talk about it on the podcast that so they said the results were not ready to be reported, mm. but, uh, on, at this panel, they had done some preliminary surveys of retailers about who which re, which distributor does the best packaging and has the best software and you know all of them ranked high in some category and the the Marco who did, and I'm forgetting his last name but he is Marco Devazo I believe he is uh, the one of the uh, comics pro board members it was very clear to say this is a survey of feelings, not truth, <laughs> which I thought was a very interesting way to to frame it. But um, I mean, Lunar is beloved for its packaging, uh, very mm-hmm. few damages, you know. PRH is beloved for its its shipping, it's free shipping, you know? <laughs> free, yeah, free know, shipping, free yeah. Shipping. <laughs> you know, uh, Diamond is beloved for. Um, something or other. I mean, it was, I think, like, you know, having their, their software, you know, having their POS system, you know, and, but Diamond is very hated for its shipping. I mean, there is a lot, I would say the biggest threat right now is the rising shipping costs, not, not the supply chain. And right. I heard several people talking about the, the, the shipping costs, which, which, uh, you know, retailer Brian Hibbs is covering on the beat in his column, Tilting at Windmills, that the shipping, Diamond sh- shipping charges, are endangering the periodical in a way that has never been endangered before in that you literally can't make money selling them. Mm. Um, so, uh, however, word on the street is that there might be some adjustments there, but we'll have to see. I'm really looking forward to Diamond holding its first retailer summit in three years in October, I'll tell you that. Great. Oh, yeah. I, I had, you, mm-hmm. Go ahead, I Kate. Heard, I, let's, let's not bury the lead here. So, Heidi, what you just said is one of the few things that's actually made me worried for any part of the comic industry at all, frankly, in the last few years, is that the shipping problems are starting to cause problems for the smaller periodical people. Not smaller, uh, everybody. Not everybody. Smaller. Everybody. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's not smaller. It's everybody. Yeah, the DC comic, um, Vault comic. Yeah, everybody. Everybody. Well, yeah, that's. Uh, they better get on that. I mean, I know... That some of this is supply chain stuff that everybody's being hit by, but some of it doesn't seem unavoidable. I mean, magazines are coming out without any problem. Uh, yeah, they, this is a bad sign. Well, for it the is. Periodical but people. But it is, and it's very specific to comics, very specific to periodical, exactly. comics periodicals. And, um, yes, there is absolutely more to come on that, and, um, you know, the other thing that people talked about, well, this is something that interested me a lot, and I brought it up with several people and, and heard a lot of agreement, is that we really don't have good data anymore. You know, we don't have good sales charts. We don't have good uh, rankings. You know, Lunar and PRH do not report. Mm-hmm. They don't have anything. I mean, Diamond has a kind of a rough chart, but we don't have anything from Lunar and PRH. Uh, you and mean on is, the periodical side? 
No, uh, well, yes, for correct. Books? Uh, well, through comic books, through comic shops, you know, through, through comic, comic shops. shops. Sure, okay. Specifically periodicals, though. Mm-hmm. You're right because they don't measure them through Bookscan. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this uh, this hurts publishers because they want to be able to say, "I had the number one book," and it hurts creators too because they want to be able to say i had the number one book i need a raise you know yeah so so there's some uh, some i mean i've been tweeting like you know we need a pos system we need like sell-through numbers and um i think it's quite a ways away but uh if if things continue on their current trajectory i wouldn't be surprised that if we do eventually develop some kind of uh sell-through charts well it seems as though there's been attempts um um yeah uh i mean it's 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 tough going for any industry if you don't have data um i mean and that's coming from somebody in the book industry where the for the most part there has not been data for years and years and years uh i mean that's slowly changing there's certainly more data now than ever before mm-hmm. um so well, yeah are you doesn't books does bookscan not give good data bookscan is it's it's uh it's better than anything we've had before i mean supposedly now they're up to 70 or 80% of the book market mm-hmm. um right. so and and it's actually come de facto that is kind of a standard that everyone uses or refers to so um and of course it's it 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 seems helpful uh, but mm-hmm. you know, numbers are also used against you. I mean, so you know, if you don't if you don't do well on Bookscan, that's that's one way. That's one reason a publisher can use to not uh, no, it's, <laughs> bring yeah, out more that, books. It, so. Then again, a publisher is going to know how many of your books they sold and how many they didn't. Uh, sure, yeah, but they, they I mean, I mean, Bookscan does give you some ability to find out like where sales are happening and the like. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but so, you know. Yeah. Pub, you know, comics publishers don't have any sell-through numbers for periodicals. Yes, yeah, yeah. That, that's always been a, an issue. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that would be the next great revolution. Um, so, uh, but I anyway, I was busy running around doing panels. Uh, I also did a panel on women's comics 50th anniversary with the amazing Trita Robbins, Lee Mars, and Barbara Mendez. That great. was pretty crazy. That mm. was just you know uh, amazing hearing them talk about their olden days and their work and how it came about and, you know, quite a delight. Um, but, uh, you know, there was quite a few uh, trailers released, which I didn't see, but, uh, you know, Kate, I think you saw the Sandman run, right? Is that the one you, you saw? Yeah, the Sandman trailer was very, very good. Um, I had, I'm saying this is someone who has read the Sandman series, who is very suspicious of uh, streaming adaptations of comics. Like, I'm willing to be pleased, but I don't necessarily assume they're going to be good and not cheesy. And at least from the trailer, it actually looked good and not cheesy. And it wasn't just one of those trailers like, I'm sorry, the teaser trailers that you've seen for Sandman before, which are just like, you know, a lot of like visual special effects and no actors and no plot and like a voiceover. No, it had significant, um, you know, chunks of of image. I mean, it it really seems like they're going to be uh, concentrating on the Corinthian story arc pretty hard, um, and they might they might not be doing as many flashbacks from what I can tell from the trailer, but that might just be the way the trailer is centered. Um, 
but it looked really good and it looked pretty true to the the atmosphere of the graphic novel so i mean we'll see but it's actually more promising than i was expecting I, I saw it too. It looked good. The special effects did look good, but it was intriguing. It did look good. It would look a rich visuals, to say the least. So, Calvin, did you see anything? Any trailers? Uh, well, obviously, for me, uh, what was yeah, kind of exciting and mystifying was was the Wakanda uh, Forever um, trailer. And, and I say mystifying oh, yeah. only because it, it seemed to be filled full of both visual references. Easter eggs, um, buried references, <laughs> um, uh, you know, illusions. Uh, it 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 seemed like a sort of you know um, cinematic experimental novel that you're really going to have to dive into and and kind of figure out everything. Which it doesn't mean that it doesn't look incredibly entertaining as well, but it does look like it. Um, Really, um, is going to be kind of a, an, uh, I don't know, an illuminating, uh, work. So, I don't know. I mean, we, we are always suspicious of, of sequels. Uh, and this is, this movie is following up easily one of the most entertaining and certainly thoughtful blockbuster films of recent years. So, yes, the Wakanda Forever, uh, trailer looked really fascinating. Yes. And, and, you know, obviously, uh, you know, making a movie, a sequel to what, as you said, one of the most entertaining and thoughtful blockbusters of recent years without the star who tragically died, um, is very, very difficult. And yeah, I, you know, I didn't get into Hall H. It was various things. I, I had a panel, couldn't get there in time and I was denied. And, uh, because I'll tell you, people were camping out for Marvel's presentation and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I kept hearing people say, oh, they're not going to do it. They're going to save it for, for, uh, Disney D23. And I was like, there is no way they are not going big at Comic-Con yeah, because, yeah. uh, you know, this is a huge thing. And I, by all reports, yeah. there was not a dry eye in the house for, not a dry eye on the house. And, and I should say, this, it, 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 it's, at the same time, it's also a tribute to Chadwick Boseman as well. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, as it would have to be. Yes. So, you know, Ryan Coogler has his work cut out for him, but yeah. he is quite a visionary. So um, uh, everyone will be there in November for sure. Well, I mean, um, I feel like leaning into it was the way to go, mm-hmm. you know, that. And he earned it. Right. Because yeah, this is quite the opposite of of uh, what I criticized about the beginning of Justice League, um, where, you know, everyone's you know, sobbing over how dead they think Superman is, but the movies haven't really built up to that. And quite frankly, the quality hadn't really built up to that either. Um, you know, both in universe and in our world, in the, the meta sense, like that love was earned. Yes. That, that character we saw why those people all loved him and we saw that they did and we saw his his place in all of this so even from you know the in universe perspective they put in the emotional investment that it does make it work as a story about grief and recovery mm-hmm. um you know it's 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 set up for it and i think kugler can knock it out of the park yeah and you know in a practical sense uh, they introduced uh, Namor, 
Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yes. Ooh, we shouldn't forget that. By, Good point. Uh, I am not going to even try to say the name until I see how to yeah, spell it. Yeah, I know what you're uh, saying. But they've tweaked, uh, his, they've tweaked his Ten- origins. Tanakh Huerta. Yeah. And he is a Latin actor, and a lot of people were very excited yes, about Namor. Yes, yes. I've seen as yes. much too. And and they announced look, they they knocked it out of the park. I really regret. I'm always gonna regret not being in there for the reveals because they announced that they are gonna do Avengers Secret Wars in twenty twenty five. So, you know, we're, we're looking ahead <laughs> three years and uh you know, I was at the last panel three years ago when they announced everything they announced at that except Blade has come to fruition. So um, you know, this was a uh, real, um, it was good. It was really yeah. good. And, and, and I'll say that, uh, there was, uh, you know, I just saw a story in the Hollywood Reporter that, you know, Comic Con is back as the top marketing platform and people went out of their way. The activations were elaborate. They were really like there was one for uh, FX, which had American Horror Story, What We Do in the Shadows, and a couple of the Mayans, a couple other things. And, uh, you know, I got in right away because of the, the press line, and I still took half an hour, and I couldn't even do the main thing, which it would have been another another half an hour wait. I mean, you would have, you spent an hour, and it, it was worth it. It was like Disneyland. It was so detailed, this uh, activation. And there was, you know, Apple was there. Apple Plus was there with an activation for um, – now I'm forgetting the name of their top show, but uh, it is the one because I don't I don't watch a lot. Of TV yeah, I, I don't either. It's Severance, Severance, yeah. which is the show. Oh, about, that show where you forget where yeah. you're from when yeah. you're at work and yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they had an activation that everybody who went raved about. Hmm. Yeah, well, Severance is is definitely a sleeper hit. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have spent way more on plenty of other shows, but I mean, uh, as witness. The uh, rather troubled Foundation series, um, which has its high points but definitely has its low points. Severance has been knocking it out of the park, and I'm pretty sure on a relatively low budget since basically all they need is an office and some decent actors. Yeah. Um, it really has gotten a cult following, and it's it's very, very beloved. Well, people were very, very impressed by Apple's presentation and appearance here. And, you know, Netflix had a presence. Hulu had a presence. Disney Plus was everywhere. Mm. They had tons of, of, you know, Disney Publishing was there, Star Wars, everything. Mm. I mean, everybody went big. I, I, you know, everybody – I think every I, – I, I felt, you know, a lot of times – you know, it's comics versus the world at Comic-Con, but I kind of felt a big unity for everyone there, you know, from the, the activations to the studios to the cosplayers and, you know, the video games and even Funko. I kind of felt a there was a united sense of joy at being back back at yeah. it that, um, that, that really came across from everybody. Um, and, you know, one other thing was uh, in Hall H had a big – presentation you know uh, the rock showed up as black adam oh, right, I, yeah. you know i wasn't mm-hmm. there and he looked like amazing but um there was a comic space panel in hall h for the first time in a long time with with calvin's friend keanu reeves <laughs> that's right there you go uh hey b- before we jump well, to this can no, i just calvin, no calvin I, I, you want to say a little bit about berserker I, I do but before i do it i just want to mention one thing that we didn't mention and that you know black panther we we are waiting to find out who the new Black Panther is. So that's, that's right. all. 
that's a mystery. I mean, that's a, not a small thing either. Um, but yes, um, and you obviously you cover this in your story, Berserker. Uh, uh, you know, franchise developed around Keanu Reeves. I mean, I think Reeves had the, uh, uh, initial idea. Uh, he reached out to Boom. Uh, we were lucky enough at Publishers Weekly to, uh, interview him last year at the U.S. Book Show, PW's, you know, um, a recreation of Book Expo. Uh, and, uh, who was a delight to talk to. Uh, but the Berserker is back. What they raised an enormous amount of money on Kickstarter. Um, there's now apparently you name it and they're doing it. There's uh, a Netflix feature in development. There apparently there's an anime, uh, that's being planned. Uh, there's a, uh, prose novels, uh, you know, uh, being planned. Cause I think the, uh, the event in Hall H was, uh, which uh, as I learned from your story, uh, Heidi, this is incredibly, I mean, we, I you kind of knew this. It's incredibly rare for the hall to be used. For a really, a, essentially, a comics property, publishing property, before there's a movie or a, or a TV series, or so. Um, uh, it, it, really, things are coming around, and I think I described Berserker earlier as you know, like a snowball rolling down the hill, and it's just picking up speed and picking up supplementary activities, uh, events, merchandising, yeah, you name it. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was, it was, it was nice to see Boom having this presence. You know, friend of the podcast, Steve and Christy was up there on mm-hmm. the stage in Hall H and, um, I'm trying to track him down because I gotta hear what was it like, you know, <laughs> what was it like to be on the big stage? So comics news was definitely not a whole lot of it. And I think some of that is because a lot of the publishers told, said that they are not flooding the market with product right now because of inflation worries and because of supply chains and because, you know, we're in a little bit unsettled, a little bit is an understatement, but, you know, it's unsettled times economically. So they're kind of not flooding uh, flooding the market at all. So the, the news was pretty subdued. I, I would have to say the biggest news is one that's a little bit near and dear to my heart is that Dynamite announced that they have the license to do Disney stuff, starting with Gargoyles and Darkwing Duck, which are two properties that I worked with back when I was at Disney Adventures in the 90s. And, uh, you know, Darkwing Duck is a, um, you know, cartoon duck superhero who is sort of related to, I mean, well, I mean, he's sort of related to the duck, the Duckbird it, universe. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's set in the same universe as as any other Disney talking duck Continuity. Yes. Uh, Although but, he works at his own city, he's not in Duckburg. Right. He's not However, in Duckburg. Launchpad <laughs> is in Launch, the same universe. In the same, well, the same universe because Launchpad is his sidekick, and Launchpad is in Ducktales. So Launchpad yes. is the connector there. Right. And uh, but you know it's well, very the fact that they're talking ducks. And, yes. and <laughs> but it's. I would say that part of what makes it work is that it very much leans into a comedic take on superheroism. Um, so it really was a cult classic at its time, and I can see how it might have the legs to keep going. Well, it's definitely been a cult classic for in comics uh, since it came. You know, it's been revived a few times, yeah. and it always gets a lot of excitement. It keeps and, around. Yes, and I, I will say based on Kate being excited about it, more as excited as she is as a reader as I am having worked on it uh it shows you that Darkwing really does take flight so uh so that's good but you know Gargoyles 
is Gargoyles is even more beloved. Is even more beloved. And Gargoyles is a series that came on the nineties. It was so far ahead of its time. Um, it was about a bunch of gargoyles who sleep during the day and uh, stone statues and come alive at night. And but they have friends on the police force. And you know, there's bad gargoyles led by Demona and good gargoyles. And uh, the guy who created it is a, a producer named Greg Weissman. And his, you know, the, uh, the Bible. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, <laughs> it was so detailed and so he had so much for this. And and it also had all of these, you know, it had romance, it had the kind of camaraderie, you know, the relationships between the characters were really, um, you know, they, they had a huge fandom uh, at it, the time. Yeah, and I mean, it has left its traces culturally. Um, a lot of its art style you see in American animation for a generation after a lot of its storytelling style you still see in a certain type of american animation today um quite frankly phrases from it have have gotten into the culture like i was just listening to a legal podcast the other day with a uh, a law run by a lawyer who's like 50 something and he he was talking about how um you know some of the people involved in January 6th weren't smart enough to do a Xanatos Gambit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's amazing. That's because amazing. Xanatos Gambit has, has entered our culture. That's you know, amazing. I mean, like all kinds of, of phrases and image. You have probably seen listeners, even if you've never watched this show, you have almost certainly seen a macro or two from it. Yeah, and I mean, that's all due to Greg Weissman. He yes. really, this is his lifetime passion project. So anyway, the good news is that that he will be writing the comics and uh, continuing some of the stories. Now, they have also revived Gargoyles before, but this is, I think, a little bit more, um, you know, kind of a little more solid. So, uh, and, you know, listen, I was... I was in a cab coming back from the dead dog party uh, talking to somebody who works at Dynamite. And we were I was saying, you know, what big news this was. And he was saying, uh, you know, something like, oh, you know, when I worked on them. And our, our Lyft driver says, you worked on gargoyles? So, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely got uh, this this uh, this cult following. So I think that's going to be a big hit for Dynamite. And, you know, good for them for yeah. uh, bringing back two really great, great. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, often... Often you hear something was ahead of its time, and you're like, yeah, yeah. But unlike Darkwing Duck, Gargoyles really was. I really, I really, honestly really was. think if it came five years later, it it would have been a mega hit instead of a sleeper. Um, yeah. And, I mean, that's a shame, and I hope that um, someday it gets the revival it deserves. Well, obviously that there's some hope for that. But, um, you know, Dar- it's, it's interesting you say that because Darkwing was definitely of its time. And, you know, I do think it comes under the 90s nostalgia rubric. So uh, one more quick note I want to talk about that I haven't talked about in any of my other podcasts. But uh, there was a big scare when we got to Comic-Con because the hotel workers at the Hilton Bayfront, which is where the Eisners are held, uh, went on strike and we were in the, the, uh, you know, the restaurant on Tuesday night because mm. I get in on Tuesday and one of the, uh, the waitresses was telling us all about it and we were all, you know, like they wanted to, to, the workers at the hotel were paying $45 for parking and they wanted to raise it to $65. So real basic stuff that, uh, should be pro- protesting. We were all behind and they actually did go on, pro- on strike on Wednesday and there was a lot of anxiety. 
because, you know, all of the big media, well, I will say all, but a lot of the media panels are held at the Hilton. Yes. And, uh, you know, actors, directors, uh, they are mm. all at union members and, you know, they would have to. And the Eisners. And line. Yeah, and the <laughs> Eisners. And I mean, there's certainly a lot of people, you know, I was questioning myself whether I would be able to cross yeah. this picket line. So thank God somebody stepped in and uh, it was it was settled on Wednesday night happily. And, uh, you know, but it was, a, and I, you know, whoever stepped in and uh, said to the hotel, you got to sell this, uh, whoever that 800 pound gorilla was, uh, you know, big thanks for that. And just one other really quick note was that uh, there was a uh, there was a Spider-Man show at the museum, which I finally went to the museum. I got to see it. And uh, this is the Comic-Con Museum. Yes, the Comic-Con mm-hmm. Museum in Balboa Park, uh, curated by Patrick Reed. And Ben Saunders, and it is great. It is a mm. great show. It yeah. has really got audio visuals, got props, got incredible art from all the great Spider-Man artists. Uh, definitely, yeah, if you're cool. in San Diego and like comics, stop by. Cool, very cool. Um, well, very quickly, you know, I I did a couple of other podcast interviews. So uh, if if I can just run through really quickly, just to point people, uh, you know, to the podcast channel. But uh, in addition to talking with Rachel Smythe, who, uh, who was an absolute delight, uh, uh, I also talked with John Jennings, star academic uh, and scholar. But he's also uh, a, a, a wonderful comics artist himself uh, who has adapted uh, the prose works of uh, Octavia Butler, Kindred, and Parable of the Sower. So he's, he's working on another book. But he's also the, the kind of director and curator of Megascope. Uh, an imprint at Abrams Comics Art that does graphic novels uh, and probably other kinds of things um, focusing on artists uh, of color. And um, so he talked a good bit about uh, the books that are out now. He's got books out uh, from a variety, including Nettie Okorafor, um, on also books that he's got coming up in the future. Uh, uh, and a book called Queenie, who I don't have the creative team in him, but it's really about a, a black woman, I believe, in the 1930s who actually was running numbers and was a formidable person at the time. So um, more to come on that. In addition, uh, very quickly, uh, there were there were I mean, I think in one of your stories, you talk about how certain people weren't there. But um, a lot of publishers there were uh, using this time, from what I can tell, to expand their spaces and grow them. Penguin Random House did the same thing, basically bringing all of their scattered imprints uh, into one one location where they're doing signings, you know, giveaways, book sales, everything. And and I had a talk, had a chance to talk with Lindsay Elias, who is the uh, director of brand events at PRH, and she talked about all of it and she put a great selfie up showing off the site so you can go to the website and see it and let's see finally i also talked uh with charles kochman who's the editorial director of abrams comics art uh you know abrams is working with marvel uh they've got the alex ross graphic novel coming out the uh, alex ross fantastic four graphic novel coming out uh apparently there's going to be some other big names uh down the road that will be doing uh work for him so we have that to look forward to so just go to publisherswiki.com slash comics and uh, click on the link to uh, the more to come podcast and you'll you can see all of our interviews from san diego awesome i'm glad you were able to participate calvin (laughs) yes i'm glad it was too 
it yes. reconnected me. And I mean, really, this is what I do when I'm in San Diego. You know, over the last really five or six years, my how I cover it has changed. And really, what I do is run around from morning to night, trying to get interviews. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, I just run around. I mean, I <laughs> I, I think I walked like seven miles a day while well, I was there. Yes, and, you uh, do. Yeah, I came home and I slept and slept and slept, and um, you now know, this is just a. This is just a preview for New York Comic Con. <laughs> well, San Diego's, I say San Diego is a lot more exhausting than New York. Yeah, Comic-Con. it is because, you know, what, you know, you're with, with New York Comic Con, you're either at the convention center or you're like out of there. Yeah. But, but, but with, with, with San Diego, you know, you're, you're in that area, you know, you're moving in and out. If there's ho- the hotels are around it. There's the gas light, uh, light district, gas lamp district. Um, I mean, I you're, yeah, and from one end of the like, they had events at the Marriott this year, and mm-hmm. to, from the Marriott to the Hilton, which is where I had to go several times, is uh, you know, it's like three quarters of a mile. Yeah. So, so just to go from one panel to another, you have to walk three quarters of a mile. So, so New York Comic Con is not as spread out anymore uh, because of all the new venues that they have, and um, you know, plus you get to sleep in your own bed, which is somehow pretty restful. Yes, it uh, is actually. Yeah, and and also. Uh, it's New York Comic Con. You can, it's easy to catch a cab or a bus or a subway. And although somebody pointed, Calvin, mm. somebody pointed out to me that you could take the trolley to go from the Hilton to the Hyatt. I mean, I guess you can, but what, you, you, but that seemed, <laughs> and now, it's like, a, like I said, it's a mile. So I'm just saying, in yeah. theory, you could just get on. You could get on the trolley and take it. So, which nobody's ever that yeah. I know has ever done. But that, that seems like a possibility a, exists. A gigantic effort for a, a, for a small payoff. But um, I mean, the thing is, folks, when you're there, look, the, the weather's beautiful. The sun is brilliant. Uh, I mean, you, the, the walk that Heidi pointed out, you might do that three or four times in a day, easily. I mean, you, you're going to be in the best shape of your life, not counting the hangovers. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that, you know, of course I didn't, I don't have the parties and the drinking at night. Um, uh, at least not to the, uh, the level of a San Diego Comic Con. So I missed it. Uh, and, um, I kind of have reached a point where I, I don't think I can really cover it the way I have in the past, which is why I didn't want to go this year. But I'm, I'm glad that I still have this connection. And I was able to get, you know, um, I think I got, uh, I probably didn't say all of them. I think I got about five interviews. So, um, go check it out. Uh, well, you know, we survived Comic Con and, uh, back to normal. The new fiscal year for comics has begun and more news to come. Yeah, back to normal. I feel like this is, this is kind of, kicking off, you know, just like you were saying that, you know, you felt like you had entered a time machine and gotten out. I I feel like that. Mm. Like, this is the first real San Diego Comic Con. It's going to be the first normal con season full strength. And yes, people are going to have to, you know, wear masks and quarantine if their roommate caught COVID. But basically, things are going to go full strength from here on out. And, uh, frankly, I'm ready for that. So, you know, on that note, there will be more to come.